Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network, our Sunday show. I'm Janine Moloff, the executive producer and your host. Well, we are just days away from the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. And both of our stories today tie directly in with that event. So let's face it, if you've seen the advert, it says, how Trump will steal 2024 vote. In fact, the full title on my copy is how January 6th was merely the practice run and how the GOP plans on stealing the elections in 24 and beyond if we allow them to. So how is that going to happen? Well, 2022 has just barely begun and the dangers of 2020 still are holding us hostage. Donald Trump has not yet been indicted for his role in inciting the January 6th insurrection, though there's plenty of evidence to show that he was directly involved and instigated, including from people that have thus far been prosecuted for their role in the insurrection. But his GOP enablers, now sitting in Congress, have also escaped indictment so far, and as a result of this inaction on the part of our listless DOJ under the stewardship of Merrick Garland, as he basically cowers under his desk, Republicans are getting bolder, which is predictable. Plans are already in the making to elect Trump's hand-picked candidates for various offices, including Secretary of State in multiple battleground states. Now, this is critical because the position known as Secretary of State is supposed to be the top election official at each individual state level, though the Republicans have uh, played with that as well. Now, this is setting the stage for a quieter coup than what the world witnessed last year on January 6, 2020. Each and every Secretary of State should face intense scrutiny like never before to ensure that all votes are counted and counted honestly and that rogue Republicans don't decide to just cavalierly toss our votes in favor of a Trump dictatorship. And I will be discussing these strategies in some depth in our big story. Keep in mind, so far, some 700-plus people have been charged. But again, no charges against Trump. All right? Now, that's our first, that's our, our big story. But first, we're going to have a story from our producer and founder, Rick Spizak. Now, Rick conducted, and I'm just looking for it right now. Give me a second here. Oh, see this? Rick conducted a, um, give me a second, he conducted an interview with four scholar activists to discuss what occurred, to discuss January 6, 2021, the year after the insurrection. And those scholar activists are Professor Wendy Lynn Lee, who's been on the show before, Professor John Dwyer, who has also been on the show before, Welsh activist Tim Evans, and the founder of FortProgress.org, Edwin and Cecil. So right now I am looking 
for Rick's contribution here. Give me a second. I do apologize, people. Okay. When I went to look for my intro, I kind of messed things up. This is small print. I hate this. Oh, give me a second, folks. It's, I think there it is. All right. We will go to this one. And here we go with Rick Spizak's interview. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Richard Spizak. I'd like to introduce Kim Evans, socialist and human rights activist from Wales, Professor John Dwyer, history professor and environmental activist with the Stone Crab Alliance, Edward Nciso, longtime human rights activist and head of For Progress, and Professor Wendy Lynn Lee, philosophy professor at Bloomsburg University and longtime environmental activist. Fantastic. Hello, Hello everyone. everyone. Thank you so much. I'm going to throw out some questions and then I'm going to ask you to each give me your thoughts, okay? Will the committee report have any effect on Republican congressmen sitting in our Congress? Okay. Folks, I apologize. We're having some technical difficulty. Rick did download a second one, and hopefully this one won't have technical problems. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host, Richard Spizak. I'd like to introduce Kim Evans, socialist and human rights activist from Wales, Professor John Dwyer, history professor and environmental activist with the Stone Crab Alliance, Edward Nciso, longtime human rights activist and head of For Progress, and Professor Wendy Lynn Lee, philosophy professor at Bloomsburg University and longtime environmental activist. Fantastic. Hello, Hello everyone. everyone. Thank you so much. I'm going to throw out some questions and then I'm going to ask you to each give me your thoughts, okay? Will the committee report have any effect on Republican congressmen sitting in our Congress? Question number two. Can the Republican Party be trusted in any way to punish the insurrectionists in power? Question three. Will the, Will the committee file charges, file charges against the officers, the officers who aided and abetted the invasion? Four. Will Trump face any Trump? Five. Will President Biden notice that a coup d'etat almost preempted his election? Does it matter? What is the best that we can hope for from the committee? And then my last two. Is Merrick Garland in suspended animation on some other planet or something? And then, finally, and then finally, since, since in, the in the printed record, they have, they have communication, communication about, about bringing, bringing scaffolding, scaffolding as early as, as December. December, how is there, is any, there any questions, questions as to what the goals were? So, having, having, having laid out some of the ground, ground I'm going to go first to Professor, Professor Wendy, Wendy Lynn Lee, Lee and, and ask me, you, you, excuse, excuse me, and tell us, you put in a lot of time studying right-wing movements. Here we have seen what can charitably be called at best a failed to attempt by the right, by the white power people. What was your reaction? What are your thoughts? You got seven minutes to just lay it out. Go for it. Okay. There's a lot of questions there. I'm not sure I remember them all in order. But I think... I think it is important to draw a distinction between how much the Biden administration 
will notice how much the Biden administration can can act, um, whether or not the J6 committee is doing its job. Um, I think the J6 committee is actually doing its job. I, I think that there's a fair lot of goodwill there, and I think that they understand the urgency of the moment. But whether that that will translate in any meaningful way into action, given the 2022 midterm elections, it could bring so much of this work to a screeching halt. I don't know. I I don't know that anybody really knows that. Um, I kind of at a we will see. Um, whether there are Republicans of 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 goodwill, um, decent human beings who are actually going to to care about this. I think we know who they are already. Uh, you know, I think Liz Cheney, I disagree with her on practically everything. Um, I think we have just a couple there, and I think that we know. Um, I think that they tell us every day that they have that the only better that the only interest that they have is in seeing this coup continue. And I would actually argue against the claim that this coup is not ongoing. It, it seems to me that there's a good deal of evidence to suggest that this coup has continued simply in different forms, perhaps in different venues, in different social media. Um, but that it that J6 was really just the beginning of this coup. And arguably, um, this is an event that had been set up for at least the four years previous to it, and probably in some ways, given a number of the anti-democratic anti forces at work in the U.S., probably for many years even before that. Right. So I know I haven't eaten up a whole seven minutes, but that's there's just one volley, um, and I would be really interested to know what other people are thinking. Thank you so much. Let me go, Let me to, go our to our overseas guest, Tim. Tim, could you address, could you address this, this issue from your prince? Surely. Um, can you can you hear me? Am I am I clear? Okay. I mean, uh, I can hear you. Clearly, I'm 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 looking at this from a, a, a British perspective, um, and. I mean, I think you have to, you know, to expect um, sort of anything approaching justice on this is, is, I think, possibly unrealistic. I mean, if you imagine what <laughs> would have happened if Black Lives Matter protesters had stormed the Capitol building on the 6th, if you can imagine the body counts that that would have uh, resulted in, then I think you know it 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 it, it tells us some unpalatable truths about what's happening in the states. It's not just happening in the states, by the way. There is political polarization happening globally. Actually, it's happening in parts of Europe, what we see in parts of Europe now are serious fascist organizations. In, 
in France, for God's sake, there is the possibility, a uh, strong likelihood of fascists um, coming into international government. Um, the problem is not so much Trump, but Trumpism, if you like, um, which feeds off a multitude of different sources. Um, in part, what I'm worried about at the moment is the fact that Biden is not presenting a particularly attractive alternative, it seems to me. Um, but that, you know, in the absence of some strong policies coming from uh, Biden, then what worries me is the possibility of a re-election, either of Trump or of one of Trump's creatures um, in 2024. And then that would result in real problems. I am very cautious about using the word fascist because I think it should only be used when you have got genuine fascists. And I don't think Trump is a fascist. I think he's a racist populist, but I don't think he's a fascist. But he does have, uh, he, he does empower fascists, actual hardcore fascists, uh, in groups like the Proud Boys, etc., etc. These are hardcore fascists. And uh, they have their street fighting factions. And we need to be sure, I, I think the American left needs to ensure that now that Democrats are elected, that it's not like, oh, well, that's all over, our guys are in office. You know, we need, in order to fight the fascists, we need a mass movement on the ground. And I, and I know that we saw that. We, we saw the possibilities in the Black Lives Matter movement. But we need something more. That's a bit like up like a rocket, down like a stick. Whenever there's a brutal police killing, we need something more. We need a, a, a mass movement, I think, on the ground to propel this forward. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. Professor John. Hello. I would uh, like to start off by confessing that my uh, understanding of politics and the situation of January 6th has not included much that has been televised. I do not watch televised news. I haven't for 30 years. Uh, it is so uh, wrought with misinformation and disinformation and, and uh the kinds of manipulations that the in the old days they used to have the the, the truth standards that television uh, was not allowed to do subliminal advertising and stuff. Today it's all off. Everything is is everything goes and it manipulates my mind too much. So I have to have control over what I put in there. And so I spend a lot of time with. Well, this morning I read the New York Times and uh, the Atlantic. And those kinds of um, uh, of texts that I can supervise what's going to be in input into my brain. My feeling about fascism and January 6th is uh, quite different 
from the the typical reaction to it, I suppose, because there is a sort of attraction attractiveness uh, by the the figures that we are presented with in Fox News and so on. But my uh, experience of January 6th, I, I, I never did watch the whole thing. I, I've had little parts of it given to me on the computer snips, and I've read about it. And the kinds of information that, that this article in uh, The Atlantic, he says that uh, January 6th was practice. This is the front page of the Atlantic for this, this month, actually, next. And the thing that he does, and Barton is a very good journalist, he, he will select a person that has been a protester at the Capitol and interview him many times and take down notes about what the person is saying and who he's depending upon for his opinions and his views about things. And then he, he goes the further, further step of asking that person that he's referring to, the, the demonstrator is referring to, what his, his, uh, where he got his ideas from. So he explores the whole thing back into, uh, you know, individual, um, uh, individuals who have made up their minds about things. My situation here, it's a very solipsistic thing to talk about, but here where I'm living in Naples, Florida, I have districts that I belong to that my, even though my house has not moved for 45 years, I belong to different districts. It's just it's amazing how many districts that I've had and representatives that I'm supposed to, you know, call on the phone. I used to put them on speed dial, but I can't do that anymore because they change so often. My state legislatures, for example, and the governors uh, that we've had lately, they influence way too much the district boundaries for various projects. You know, my house is the same place, same everything for a long, long time, and the state representative that people around me don't realize that there's a state representative and a federal representative. It's, it's amazing. The state senators are different from the federal senators. And uh, you think everybody would know, would know that. Well, school board members, who's, who's my representative in the school board? It's, it changes so much. And I like to state my positions to these people. And I can't keep up with the changes on my phone anymore. It's not to mention the, the, you know, the computer targeting, the phone targeting, the airwave targeting that creates a continual barrage of information and misinformation that is trying to cop my mind into thinking a certain way. So when I think that there's going to be, you know, uh, our first speaker said something about justice. Uh, how can we have a representative government with voters in charge when the voters go to the polls and they're gerrymandered out of positions of authority? All we have are these people who are paper tigers that seem to be in charge and authoritative that aren't. They don't read anything. They don't study anything. They just have been coached to say things that... Uh, you know, are not going to get them into too deep a water with, with too many people. 
President Biden, you know, there's there's a lot of flack that he's got because of his inability to speak very well. If he were articulate enough to state in a very strong way uh, what his position is about January 6th and and bringing justice to those people who were there, uh, it would be a different game. But he can't do that. He's coached by people who tell him what to say. And he's not been told, you know, the the people who are in charge of the Democratic Party have been cautious, way too cautious, about telling him to hold back about this or that. And, uh, you know, the Build Back Better Act, for example. The Build Back Better Act uh, has had so much uh, misinformation about it, nobody knows what's in it. And he ought to be on the airways telling people what's in it. Uh, you know, you get a, a little comment from a state representative every now and then, and I prefer to listen to uh, Alexandria more than my own representative because she at least talks straight. Uh, my own representative is not. Uh, he writes letters uh, every week to, quote, inform, unquote, uh, what, what are the constituents that he has. And, and he never responds ever to the things that I ask him about in, when I'm uh, con- in conflict with his, his opinions. So it's, uh, it's, it's a terrible thing to think about fascists taking over. Uh, not to mention those other things that there are individual people that uh, the article, for example, the, in the Atlantic Monthly talks about. Uh, and I think it's a very good thing. Today, in the New York Times, uh, it talks about the map drawing that was done in Michigan yesterday and how the uh, Michigan legislature has been in, the, in a vice-like grip of Republicans for so long that they had ensured their success, at least on a state level, for ages to come. They redrew the maps yesterday. And they did not allow the politicians to do it. <laughs> that, that was great. What, what they did was distribute the decision-making to the people who count. And they had the voters be the ones who are saying what district I'm supposed to be in and who is supposed to be my representative. That's the way it should be. That's the way fascists are able to take over a state legislature and the whole government of the, of the at the capitol because they manipulate stuff that makes you seem uh not to count makes your voice so uh quiet that it uh, it doesn't seem to make any difference at all thank you sir thank you sir thank you very thank much. you very much edwin edwin you've been, you've been involved, involved in so many effective, effective political actions and and even better, Even than, better that, than that, you're a person that thinks, thinks quite deeply, quite deeply about, about political, political action. And I, and I wanted to take your experience, your experience and, have and have you reflect, you reflect on this, this, this movement, whether, whether we decide that it's, that it's, Trump's, it's got Trump's face and is and just, is just uh, the, current the current mask of corporate, corporate fascism. However, However you want to distribute the blame, the blame. I want you to talk about it as a political action. January 6th, you've, you've, you've raised some very interesting issues in your essay on the topic. 
don't you go, why don't you go ahead? Thank you. You know, I, I want to thank you, of course, for inviting me into this discussion and uh, all the, the panelists here uh, for your thoughtful points. Uh, when it comes to the, the political organizing, what uh, Professor Evans mentioned about fascism is really something that I wanted to, to focus in on. I can appreciate the concern with using a term like fascism inappropriately. Um, we have to be careful because we respect history, because we care about science on the use of terms and not to uh, weaponize vocabulary the way that the, the right often does. From the perspective of a community organizer, one of the challenges that I have with how fascism has been used in the past is that it's very difficult to leverage those the way that it's been used to then help us prevent that problem from reemerging. Let, um, let me draw this comparison. Uh, we know that there's mafia organizing, criminal syndicates, and that that organizing can begin at the small scale in a city and then grow to state and national levels. And it can grow these criminal syndicates to the point where a whole nation is taken over by a criminal syndicate in the way that the Assad family, for example, has taken over Syria. Um, and so once you reach that level of national mafia control, um, you have a real problem. But before you reach that point, there is such a thing as mafia organizing. And it's critical, and we need social scientists to help us understand the different stages and how it, it reaches that point of national organizing. And my concern with the term fascism is that it's, it's only reserved for when we have, or commonly used, when we have something like the Third Reich. Um, and there's a real hesitation to talk about fascist organizing beforehand. I, I, I thank Professor Evans for pointing out that there are fascist organizers, for example, within the, the Trump movement and that you saw that. What I, I need help with, and I, I hope we can talk a little bit about, is what does fascist organizing at the small scale, as it builds up, 1930 Nazi party, Mussolini fascist organizing, what does it look like in the early stages? One of the things that I, I think that, for example, um, would be helpful is the comparison to religious fundamentalism and how it seems that fascism may be akin to a sort of political fundamentalism in that just as religious fundamentalism rejects facts, logic, and basic norms of fairness to advance religious followership, with fascism as political fundamentalism, you see the same or very similar rejection of facts, logic, and basic norms of fairness to advance political followership. And that's what we see with Trump, for example. It's, it's a rejection of, of facts, of logic, of basic norms of decency to advance political followership. And, and that is incredibly dangerous, especially because historically, Fascism weaponizes and systematizes prejudice in society. 
to develop political coalitions that are capable of, of actually rising to a popular election of, of republic, um, which is the danger that we're seeing now. Um, so thank you. Uh, Professor, uh, Professor Lee, Lee, let me ask, let me you, ask you this. You, you, you studied the right, the right very closely, and what we've seen, seen because, because of so many veterans involved in this insurrection, uh, we've, uh, we've seen what looks to be collusion uh, in the military, the Pentagon, supporting this. There's talk. How can we eliminate or reduce right-wing activity in the military or racist activity in the military? What are some of your thoughts on that? Because clearly, if, if these forces of the right, these forces of conservatism can count even more on military support, it, it, it doesn't give us a lot of room. Um, yeah, first, let me apologize for my parent. I think you guys can hear my parent chattering in the background. Sorry, he's, he's excited. I'm in my study at home. Um, so, some of these observations about the military, I think, actually intersect in some really important ways with what both Edwin and Tim, particularly, were talking about with respect to fascism. Um, one of the things I was thinking about while while Edwin was talking is that if if we take the the model of say religious fundamentalism and we we wed that to the discussion of the the grassroots emergence of of mafia. It seems to me what part of what we get is precisely that kind of, I think Edwin put it this way, that kind of followership, that kind of um, very blind or, or willfully blind devotion to what in my own work I've been calling a species of, of authoritarianism. Um, so then what we have are, are, are figures like Trump who are symptomatic. They're, they're, they're not a cause. They're really a symptom of, of these, these trends that if we then also add an element that I think is one of the important fascist elements, we add this element of... Um, the sense in which these movements are lucrative, right? That, the, that they attract lots of grifters, right? The Candace Owens of the world, right? The um, Turning Point USAs of the world, the Charlie Kirk's of the world, right? There's, right, there's this kind of bandwagon effect too, loyal followers or, or just opportunistic grifters, which I think at bottom is what Trump was. But because they inspire um, for example, the Josh Hawleys of the world, who I think are, are ideologues. Right? They're not just scripters, they're not just opportunists, like a Trump is, but you know, they're the true believers. I think that what we see is this even greater danger. And so to answer your question more directly about the, the attraction to uh, military, 
I get to put this as a rhetorical question. Why would we be surprised that we see so many service members so resistant to vaccination for coronavirus? Right? It seems to me like nothing about that that's really surprising because their resistance to vaccination is simply an expression or a reflection of their their both their ideological commitment to this kind of movement towards fascism or authoritarianism and they're they're susceptible right they're vulnerable because because they're service members because they're already in the mode right in the service of following orders right they're they're already um, as it were, the Adolf Eichmann that Hannah Arendt talked about so eloquently, um, and Eichmann in Jerusalem, because they're 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 ready to follow, right? So it just seems to me that the service members kind of epitomize many of the elements that we're talking about here. They personify those elements in ways that I think are are predictable, are not surprising, right? And that they're anti-vaxxers is just one way of talking about how it is that they epitomize that kind of followership. You've been listening to Professor Wendy Lynn Lee, philosophy professor at Bloomsburg University, uh, Edward N. Ciso from For Progress, uh, Professor John Dwyer, environmental activist, and with the Stone Club Alliance, and Tim Evans, socialist and human rights activist from Wales. Hope you've enjoyed part one. This is Richard Spizak, your host, saying, see you next year. Okay, so that was part one of our report by our producer and founder, Rick Spizak. Um, I realize we still had some technical difficulties on that, so we will most likely try and fix those technical problems and rerun it next week along with part two. We'll just see how this works out. So now we're going on to our big story. While the while Rick's uh, interview was going on, we had a caller, once again, our loyal Loyal caller from 111111111. Don't you just love it when people are too cowardly to show their real phone number? Anyway, that's the way it is. So we're going to move on to the big report. And my report actually dovetails with Rick's uh, interview and his experts quite well, actually. So this, as I said at the beginning, this is how January 6th, uh, the anniversary of which we're going to have this week, the practice run, and how the GOP plans on stealing elections. Let me make sure I've got my volume going here. There we go. And how the GOP plans on stealing elections in 2024 and beyond if we allow them to. Make no mistake about this. This is not merely, again, I'm going to adjust the volume here. This is not merely about Trump and what some of the uh, – experts called Trumpism. This is a coordinated systemic effort. This is about ending democratic rule and legitimate rule of law as we know it. Make no mistake about it. And it couldn't happen 
if the corporate members of the Democratic Party didn't enable it to some degree. You know, we have corporate Dems like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, but also some others like Pelosi and Schumer that basically have not listened to progressives. In fact, they've used progressives with derision. And they have essentially embraced moving slightly farther to the right as they go along and really enabled the rise of Trump. Now, they're too cowardly to embrace actual violence. So the GOP does it for them. Essentially, corporate Dems basically are the good cops to the GOP's bad cops. That's my read on it. And, you know, I was talking to a friend the other evening, and she's a fan, an old classmate of mine. And, you know, she mentioned how I'm just, you know, so radical. And I know she meant it in a kind way, but it is a sad commentary that people like me are viewed as radical with all the negative connotations radicalism imports when basically my positions are merely fighting for the completion of the promise of FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and John Kennedy. You know, when Bernie Sanders talks about Medicare for all, what most Americans do not realize, so I'm kind of going a little off script right here, is that when John Kennedy first came up with the idea of Medicare, initially the plan was to start with people 65 and over, but then expand it systematically so that eventually Medicare would cover everyone from birth to death. It was going to be some form of national health insurance like they have in France and other places. Well, Kennedy was assassinated, and Johnson had a hard time just getting Medicare for senior citizens through, but he did. And then after Johnson left the Oval Office, we got Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon made damn sure that Medicare for all never saw the light of day. That's when he encouraged uh, basically businesses to attach health care, health insurance, as a benefit but what you don't realize is, yeah, it's a benefit, but it also contributes to lower pay. All right. So we've been ripped off no matter what. So when people call me a radical, I'm thinking then, okay, fine, I'm a radical then, but then you're calling FDR a radical, you're calling John Kennedy a radical, and so on and so forth. Okay, with that, I'm going to move on. So, you know, Happy New Year, everybody. 2022 is beginning with a bang. Again, as I said before, we're days from the first year anniversary of the January 6th violent insurrection. And right now, uh, approximately some 700, 735 people, I believe, have been charged. They were participants. But we still have no charges against the big kahuna, Donald Trump. In fact, Trump and his top acolytes, such as Professor John Eastman, formerly with Chapman University, uh, and House leader, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and others, they've all been furthering this big lie. If the big lie sounds familiar to you, it's because this was a theory espoused by none other than Adolf Hitler. You know, Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf and some others that, you know, if you tell a lie often enough and you make it big and outrageous enough, eventually, no matter how insane it sounds, people will believe it. Because basically, Hitler saw, like Trump, Hitler, like Trump, saw that the average person is an easy mark to be conned and ripped off. That's all. 
So the big lie was that the election was rigged. It's been pushed by Trump. And, you know, once again, it's been pushed by the GOP of Trump. And even though out of some 62 court cases, many of which appeared before Trump appointed judges, 61 of them were found to be frivolous and wrong. There wasn't any election fraud at all. But the reason the Republicans are mad is because it was harder for them to continue to commit basically voter suppression en masse, especially against uh, communities of color. That's what happened. This is what you see happen when basically everybody's vote actually gets counted. So the GOP of Trump is willing to go to almost any length in order to steal the election of 2024. And here's the hint. The steal will take place in GOP-dominated state legislatures. They are key. And one of the articles that I think it was Professor uh, Wendy Lee mentioned, and maybe it was also Professor Dwyer as well, um, there was an article published in The Atlantic by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Barton Gelman, and he lays it all out. And then he, he was interviewed also by NPR, and I've got some quotes from the NPR article as well, as well as some analysis. And Barton Gelman gives us a dire warning. And it's backed up by documented facts. And then finally, in the conclusion, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about how the GOP ha- has plotted to not only steal the election of 24, but all elections afterwards and to lock it in. And in all fairness, uh, like as I said many times before, as much fun as it is to blame everything on Donald Trump, this was going on before Trump politically came to power. It's been going on for some time. I would say in southern states, definitely throughout Jim Crow. And in states that didn't have obvious Jim Crow laws, definitely since Richard Nixon, the southern strategy. Voter suppression has been a key cornerstone of the GOP for decades. Make no mistake about it. All right. So we're going to talk about Barton Gelman's really explosive and incredibly important reporting. No doubt about it. And then today, you know, I saw that Margaret Brennan at Face the Nation and Chuck Todd from Meet the Press both ran reports on their, their you know, their confusion and their, their uh, upset that, gosh, you know, we could be facing the end of democracy that the GOP could be stealing the election and ending democratic rule, and they just couldn't understand why. Well, you know, they're talking heads. Maybe if they stop covering the political horse race, as useless as that is, and actually covered issues with analysis and explanation, maybe they wouldn't be so confused by this turn of events. But at least almost a year after January 6th happened, they finally did a report on it. Mazel tov. That means congratulations to all the non-Jewish people in the audience. And you can practically picture me rolling my eyes because, again, you know, corporate media, they have utterly failed us. So let's start. So there was an article. I tried to get the article from The Atlantic. They had a paywall. Oh, well. So I have a piece written by Alex Henderson, December 6th. 
And it was an alternate, which is a very good left-wing type uh, media. It's one of several media outlets that has really suffered with the new um, algorithm that Facebook has been employing since 2017. <clears throat> so I'm going to mention these outlets because they're, it's important reporting there, all right? And it's very well documented. You've got Alternet. You've got Truth Out. You've got um, a publication that branched off from Truth Out that I publish in, BuzzFlash. In fact, if you look at the story of BuzzFlash, you'll see that when they started in 2000 under my editor, Mark Carlin, uh, people as renowned as, as Bill Moyers and Rachel Maddow basically said the first thing they do is check BuzzFlash in the morning. You have Truth Dig with Chris Hedges, another Pulitzer Prize winner. The Atlantic does great publication, even though it's, you know, more mainstream. You have, obviously, The Intercept. You have Op-Ed News with Rob Call uh, does great reporting. They've all suffered. You have Common Dreams. You have Consortium News with the late Robert Perry. Again, many of these outlets were founded by established uh, veteran journalists who got kicked out of corporate media because they dared to want to actually write the truth. Chris Hedges, good example. I know I'm getting off topic a little bit here. Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winner, New York Times, Newsweek. He had the audacity to tell the truth about the Iraq War, and his editors from the New York Times told him, either stop it or you're fired. He said, fine, I resign. Now, that's integrity. Brilliant writer, by the way. You've got ProPublica. You've got Inside Climate News. It goes on and on. And, again, the Facebook algorithm has hurt them all quite a bit. So we're going to start publishing uh, on our website the names of these other publications so you can actually see the good work they do. So let's move on. All right, so here in alternate, um, Alex Henderson, December 6th, analyzed the Atlantic's journalist, uh, the Atlantic's Barton Gelman. And, you know, Gelman published this piece in the Atlantic. He predicted that Trump's, call it a coup attempt, would have a better chance of succeeding, okay? So on November 2nd, 2020, The Atlantic published this article by Barton Gelman, and the headline was How Trump Could Attempt a Coup. And Gelman reported that, quote, behind the scenes, Biden's team was preparing for the worst. Now, furthermore, real-time host Bill Maher was also making the same troubling predictions. This was before, you know, Biden actually got into office, was sworn into office. Um, and, of course, the GOP accused Gelman and Maher of, you know, being crazy and suffering from what they call, quote, Trump derangement syndrome, end quote. Okay. But as we now know now, not just November 2nd, that Trump and his attorneys, you know, they were ready. They had this con ready to go. Now, there was an NPR interview with Gelman and this terrifying prediction. Um, Gelman did an interview, and we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that interview with NPR's Terry Gross. And one of the quotes is Gelman warned, "Quote: What Trump can do if he's sufficiently ruthless, and I think he's proving that he is. If he can do his best to keep changing forms whenever he gets an answer, he doesn't like to simply reject it. And we've seen this administration prepared to just reject actual rule of law, 
and the requirements of rule of law. So now that was Gelman's November 2020 warnings, you know, before Biden was actually sworn in. But Gelman's worried more about the 24 election, and he explains it in an Atlantic article that's pub- that was published just this past week. And Gelman warns, quote, technically, the next attempt to overthrow a national election may not qualify as a coup. It will rely on subversion more than violence, although each will have its place. If the plot succeeds, the ballots cast by American voters will not decide the presidency in 2024. Thousands of votes will be thrown away, or millions, to produce the required effect. The winner will be declared the loser. The loser will be certified president-elect, end quote. Gelman goes on, quote, the prospect of this democratic collapse is not remote. People with a motive to make it happen are manufacturing the means. Given the opportunity, they will act. They are acting already. They are driving out, excuse me, they are driving out or stripping power from election officials who refused to go along with the plot last November, aiming to replace them with exponents of the big lie. They are fine-tuning a legal argument that purports to allow state legislators to override the choice of the voters. End quote. I'm going to, say, I'm going to read that statement again. They are, they, in other words, Trump's lawyers and other Republican partisans. Quote, they are fine-tuning a legal argument that purports to allow state legislators to override the choice of the voters. That legal argument rests on the obscure doctrine of constitutional interpretation that Republicans seem to think they can leverage to their example. That's the author's statement. To quote quote Barton Gelman once again, quote, Republicans are promoting an independent state legislature doctrine, which holds that state houses have plenary or exclusive control of the rules for choosing presidential electors. Taken to its logical conclusion, it could provide a legal basis for any state legislature to throw out an election, to throw out an election result it dislikes and appoint its preferred electors again. Okay. And I go on. Gelman continues. The question, quote, the question could arise and Barrett's vote, in other words, Amy Coney Barrett, and Barrett's vote could become decisive if Trump again asked a Republican-controlled legislature to set aside a Democratic victory at the polls. Any such legislature would be able to point to multiple actions during the election that it had not specifically authorized. To repeat, that is the norm for how elections are carried out today. Discretionary procedures are baked into the cake. That's scary. Delman goes on, a Supreme Court friendly to the doctrine of independent state legislatures would have a range of remedies available to it. The justices might, for instance, simply disqualify the portion of the votes that were cast through unauthorized procedures. But one of those remedies would be the nuclear option, throwing out the vote altogether and allowing the state legislature to appoint electors of its choosing, end quote. Let me go on. I'm going to do that last statement again. This is through trickery and deceit, but it was always, it was always there, a possibility. 
according to Gelman, quote, one of those remedies would be the nuclear option. Throwing out the vote altogether and allowing the state legislature to appoint electors of its own choosing, end quote. This all has to do with the Electoral College. It's another reason why the Electoral College has to go. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, folks. This, so, and Gelman really believes that the MAGA Republicans will be in a better position to steal a presidential election in 24. And he explains, quote, in every, excuse me, quote, in nearly every battle space of the war to control the count of the next election, state houses, state election authorities, courthouses, Congress, and the Republican Party apparatus, Trump's position has improved since a year ago. To understand the threat today, you have to see with clear eyes what happened, what is still happening after the 2020 election. The charlatans and cranks who filed lawsuits and led public spectacles on Trump's behalf were sideshows. They distracted from the main event, a systemic effort to nullify the election results and then reverse them. Martin Gelman called it out. So all this stuff, including the insurrection on January 6th, this was all sideshows. It was meant to distract everybody while they put certain people in place in various state legislatures and state governments to steal the vote. Make no mistake about it. And people wonder, well, is Trump, he's not that vindictive. Yes, he is. He's that vindictive. He's that narcissistic. <coughs> and uh, that dangerous. So, once again, to quote Gelman, to understand the threat today, you have to see with clear eyes what happened, what is still happening after the 2020 elections. The charlatans and cranks who filed lawsuits and led public spectacles on Trump's behalf were sideshows. They distracted from the main event, namely a systemic effort to nullify the election results and then reverse them. So he's got the fix in. <clears throat> Sorry, folks, he's still sitting in a cold house. And it's getting colder outside. So Gelman went on to say, quote, as milestones passed, individual certification by states, again, the Electoral College, the meeting of the Electoral College on December 14th, Trump's hand grew weaker. But he played it strategically throughout. The more we learn about January 6th, the clearer the conclusion becomes that it was the last gambit in a soundly conceived campaign, one that provides a blueprint for 2024. So what are the Democrats doing? Why hasn't the Department of Justice, in full, maybe they have investigated Trump, I don't know, but they should have enough evidence now to indict the bastard. Why haven't they? Well, Merrick Garland, who is the United States Attorney General, he may have been a brilliant judge, but he just doesn't appear to have the courage, the guts to be the Attorney General. He wouldn't have been my pick. I would have gone for somebody like Katie Porter, you know, who is also a law professor and who basically always does her homework. Trump would already be doing the perp walk. 
instead they picked Merrick Garland. And there was a piece, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> sorry folks, it's a piece written by David Badash and the New Civil Rights Movement. Okay, again published in Alternet. The head, and this was published December 6, 2021, a few weeks ago. Um, the headline, Merrick Garland shivering under his desk, ex-U.S. official slam DOJ for lack of action on criminal Trump. You see, the thing is this. Yeah, a criminal, a neo-Nazi like Trump cannot succeed unless those who are placed in office to act as a bulwark against tyrants if they don't do their job or if they're too cowardly to do their job. Merrick Garland may be, might be a brilliant jurist, but we needed a fighter in DOJ. And he clearly is not. He's, he's just too academic. We need someone that's not only academic, but also a fighter, like I said. Me, I would have picked Katie Porter. She, like I said, Trump would already be doing the perp walk along with Ivanka and the whole bunch of them. And it wouldn't be for technicality. It would be for high treason. All right, so apparently there's been some information that's leaked out that several former U.S. government officials, again, I'm not real thrilled by, um, uh, what do you call it, um, anonymous sources. I don't use them, but this is what I have here, okay? They... Several former U.S. government officials are just mad as hell because the Biden administration isn't protecting American democracy, and that especially, especially the fact that DOJ has not seen fit to prosecute Donald Trump or those that basically engaged in the planning of January 6th. And I would add not just the planning, I would add the big money behind it, you know, I've done enough research and I've talked about other shows that January 6th, these people didn't just put out their own money. There was big money given by Koch foundations. So there's Charles Koch by foundations that were basically gifted money through the Mercer family, the Uline family, and so on and so forth. Those billionaires that gave money to, for this, they should be criminally investigated and indicted as well. They are accessories. They are part of it. All these people should. If it had been a little person, they'd already, like I said, be in handcuffs. And it's not just me that says it. Former Clinton White House Press Secretary Joe Lockhart uh, spoke out. He's now a CNN political analyst, and I'm, I'm shocked that he spoke out that much if he's basically doing uh, political analysis at CNN because CNN's been basically useless. But um, he basically said that, you know, uh, Trump seemed to admit, you know, in early December that he intentionally obstructed justice as documented by the newcivilrightsmovement.com, and the way he obstructed justice was firing then FBI Director Jim Comey, okay? But then Lockhart also explained that DOJ has, quote, no interest in bringing Trump to justice. Um, Lockhart went on to say, quote, why should anyone have confidence in our system of justice where lawyers lie to get on SCOTUS, to get on the Supreme Court, and criminals walk free? 
And that's true. A lot of these people that won't speak up, it's all about their own political ambitions. And we need to out them. Uh, Lockhart cited their early December political story where the headline was about how January 6th, how generals lied um, about the, the D.C. Guard, National Guard. Okay. So basically Lockhart talks about the political story. Oh, our caller from 1111111111 is back again. As I stated before, we pay for this airtime. And if I'm going to take callers, I say at the beginning of the show, but I don't interrupt the show. And newsflash, I'm not going to answer it. And mainly because I don't want to. This is not Fox. All right? I'm not going to let somebody basically call in and act like a eh, deadbeat, if you will, stealing our time. So bye, one 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 one. Yeah, hand is up. Guess what? My middle finger's up. Bye. Okay, so getting back to this. The bombshell political story that political story that uh, Joe Lockhart was talking about, um, it talked about how, quote, a high-level National Security Council and Pentagon official was, quote, slamming the Pentagon's inspector general for what he calls an error-riddled report that protects a top Army official who argued against sending the National Guard to the Capitol on January 6th, delaying the insurrection response for hours. <clears throat> there was also some more. Separately, a former U.S. government um, ethics director, a man named Walter Schaub, uh, also was quoted saying, quote, that there's a quote, there's a country where a deposed leader tried to overthrow the government with help from top military leaders and his allies have spent the last year rigging the next election. And Shop is actually referring to Trump and the GOP. Shop has gone on to, oh, see now. He goes on to say, quote, none has been held accountable, but that country is hosting a democracy and anti-corruption summit, end quote. And that was basically how at the beginning of December, Biden was hosting this virtual summit for democracy there were over 100 participants, and they represented governments and civil society and private sector leaders. Um, and Shab explained, quote, the government of that country is excluding domestic watchdog groups from the summit and its preparations to keep the focus on foreign corruption and off the lack of accountability for the corruption of the last administration and the current one's refusal to support reforms, end quote. Okay. And Schaub went on to say, Schaub accused members of Congress and congressional staffs of living, quote, in a universe where it's 1991, while in the real world, it's more like Germany before Hitler took power. Okay. Schaub posed the question for history professors, quote, were the people of the Weimar Republic, in other words, in Germany, as aware as we are of what was to come? Americans who don't work in the Senate or White House, these folks are pretty clearly living interdimensionally in a universe where it's 1991, okay? And Mr. Schaub is quite right. Again, you have to ask yourself the question, why is the Biden administration ignoring this? Are they that terrified? Or are their members high up in the Democratic Party, the same corporate Democrats that have t taken campaign contributions, a.k.a. bribes from the same corporate sources as Republicans, are there also members 
high up in the Democratic Party that are also complicit. You know, good cops to the Republicans, bad cops. Neither way, democracy is in danger, and we have a right to know. And then Schaub commented on how former Trump justice official Jeffrey Clark um, was going to plead the fifth to the January 6th committee, okay? And Schaub effectively accused uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland of cowardice. To quote Schaub, quote, seems like a big deal that a former top Justice Department official has to plead the fifth, specifically regarding what he did while in the job. The criminal Trump administration should be held accountable. Sadly, we have Merrick Garland shivering under his desk, end quote. I agree with him. Okay. So now we're getting to the actual NPR um, interview. And basically, the Atlantic journalist that wrote this devastating piece on how the GOP of Trump intends to steal the election of 24 and all elections after that, theoretically, uh, Bart, Bart Gelman, um, he was interviewed by Terry Gross of Fresh Air on NPR. Okay. And this, uh, this interview was conducted on December 9th, this past month. So the article that I'm referring to is by journalist Barton Gelman in The Atlantic is titled, quote, Trump's next coup has already begun. Okay. And this is, again, about how we face a very serious danger to democracy, losing it that it could come to an end. And Gelman really points out the fact that Republicans, even, even before Trump, had been building this, what he calls, quote, apparatus for election theft, end quote. Um, Gelman warns the Republicans have not only set up this apparatus whereby through technically vague language in the Constitution, specifically around Article 2, I believe it is, that would allow Republican-dominated legislatures to decide what electors actually certify the next president. But they also, he also pointed out the fact that the GOP and Trump, they let loose tens of millions of really violent Trump supporters. And what we saw on January 6th, it wasn't just a distraction. It wasn't just a threat. It was a promise of violence to come. There is a very distinct similarity between what the GOP of Trump has done and, yes, the Third Reich under Adolf Hitler. Both groups let loose criminals and those prone to, to especially racial violence and set them loose and help them commit acts of grievous violence against minorities, against anyone who could be an opposing viewpoint. And both, in both instances, the goal was to destroy democracy and to establish a tyrant. And the reward for those who participated in this, this high treason, because that's what it is, they would get good jobs in that revolution, if you will. They would be like the Gauleiters, the, the Nazi stormtroopers. Make no mistake about it. And, you know, when Margaret Brennan, for instance, and Chuck Todd both were just amazed that many of the people that were there in D.C. on January 6th of last year, 
they weren't like what they thought stereotypical rednecks, to borrow a phrase. These were people that were professionals. They were doctors, lawyers, engineers. They were business people that owned independent business. They were CEOs, you know, and office holders. And they were stunned. And I thought, why are you stunned? Seriously. Some of the most heinous acts of violence committed by the Third Reich against minorities were committed by alleged, quote, good people that normally don't do things like that. You shouldn't be shocked. And if Margaret Brennan and Chuck Todd and some of the others had done their damn job and actually reported on issues and done analysis instead of cover the, I won't say the F-bomb, I'll say effing horse race, then we would know more about this. It's an article here and an article there. We've covered this on this show. And thank God for phenomenal journalists like Barton Gelman. But how many people are really going to read The Atlantic? Let's get a little real here. They're not. This is, and we shouldn't be shocked that there's this level of Nazism in this nation. And the reason we shouldn't be shocked is because there is a direct link between white supremacy and Nazism. They are one and the same. And yes, I have documentation to prove it. The fact is, when Hitler was actually creating his uh, genocidal machine, where did he get his tips on the first laws that would restrict movement and imprison innocent people because he didn't like their minority? He looked to the Jim Crow laws of the South of the United States. Jim Crow. There's no difference here. If you're a white supremacist, then yes, you are a Nazi. Get it straight here. The goals are the same. Make no mistake about it. Okay. Trump has built this, you know, according to Gelman, this is the first American mass political movement that's ready to fight by any means necessary, including bloodshed. I would argue this political homegrown Nazism, if you will, has always existed. Trump just incited the renewal of American Nazism and white supremacy and his tactics and the strategies of the rogue GOP. They come straight out of Hitler's playbook, as, and Hitler's playbook comes from Jim Crow. They are, again, one and the same. So I would argue that Trump basically took advantage of a situation. He took advantage of white resentment. You know, it's been theorized that if you're used to a certain amount of privilege, that when things are equalized and you receive no more rights or privilege than anyone else, to those who are used to privilege, it feels like they've been, that they've been robbed when they weren't entitled to that privilege in the first place. So you've got this white resentment. You've got a politics of fear, and that's in that, uh, what they call it, great replacement theory, you know, I, I'm ashamed to say I have a distant cousin. She buys into this. The great replacement theory that, um, you know, people of color will replace all of us and we'll be outnumbered. And I remember the first time she mentioned it. I won't name her, but, you know, she says, we'll be outnumbered. And I looked at her and said, we're always outnumbered. I mean, the Jewish population in the United States is between 2 and 4%. She wasn't talking about that. I was a little naive. She meant whites. And when she explained it to me, 
I just stood there in absolute disgust. I could not believe the ugliness that was coming out of her mouth. And her father was an attorney who was best friends with a major civil rights attorney here in St. Louis. I don't know where she got this from, but again, the politics of fear is, is very dangerous. Okay. So again, I would disagree with Gelman on this idea that Trump created this. No, he renewed it. It was already there, always there. As for Barton Gelman himself, he is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's also a former Washington Post reporter. And he won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for public service. And this was on coverage of the NSA and Edward Snowden. He also authored um, the following books, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, and Angler, the Cheney Vice Presidency. Okay. So Gelman is well-versed. So give me an example of what we've been talking about, about state legislators basically throwing out the vote and robbing us of our votes. It doesn't just happen that the you know, Secretary of State is one of the positions they're going to go after because the Secretary of State in most states is supposed to control and supervise all election activity. Although Republicans in some states, if they had a Secretary of State in office they didn't like, that actually wanted to play by the rules and they'd just defang them by taking away their power. So Gelman explains, to give you an example, uh, in Michigan, okay, in 2020, during this whole electoral college fiasco, there was, they have what they call a, um, let me get this straight here, a Michigan Board of State Canvassers, okay? So they apparently, like, you know, coordinate stuff. And the Michigan Board of State Canvassers is evenly divided. There's two Republicans and two Democrats. And in 2020, um, Trump was, you know, was determined to get both Republicans to refuse to certify the Michigan election results. And that it's the state cert level certification is required before electors can actually be appointed to go to the electoral college. And Biden had won the state of Michigan. So Trump's people, they wanted to deadlock the panel. And then that would have given the Michigan state legislature time to maybe do something to put things in Trump's favor, pass a law, whatever. Thank God there was one Republican on that panel that actually believed in the rule of law, and his name was Van Langevelde. He's like a 30-something. And he told the truth. He said the election results for Biden were valid. And what was his reward? He's been hounded out of office, and he's off the State Board of Canvassers. Okay, and that's what Trump allies have done all over the country. You know, they just remove people that went against Trump, or if they can't do that, then they change the law with Republican-dominated state legislatures so that the people in office would no longer have any authority to get in Trump's way. So they either replace the people or they defang office holders so they can't actually do their job. And put bluntly, this is nothing but gangsterism, worthy of the mafia, nothing else. It's criminality wearing the facade of legality. Just is. And, you know, we know Trump played, you know, he Trump admitted that in the 
real estate business and building business in New York, you, you deal with mafia all the time. It's just for the price of doing business. Well, you know, was that an anecdote or was that an admission of criminality on Trump's part? The question. So <clears throat> that's the strategy, though. You know, basically, a presidential election, the can winning candidate has to get 270 electors from the Electoral College to place the votes for him. And Trump's strategy last time and, and in the future is to find states that either Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is that wins and either persuade or pressure a Republican legislature, according to Gelman, to, quote, substitute Trump's electors for the Biden or the Democratic electors. Um, Gelman also goes on to say, or to say that the choice of the voters can't be relied upon or that there was fraud or irregularities, and the legislature is therefore going to choose who the legislature thinks won. Okay? This is what's going on all over the country. And it's been normalized since 2020. Although that's what Gelman has claimed anyway. Personally, I wouldn't say that this, this strategy that basically is cheating, legalized cheating, I wouldn't say it's been normalized. I say that Trump set loose his mafiosa mob and any Republican politician who still believes in the rule of law they back down in fear to the, you know, the violent barbarians at the gate. This is mafia criminality, you know, where the mob boss doesn't clearly state publicly what they want done. They hint at it. And the, why do they do that? To avoid any obvious criminal culpability. And that's exactly what Trump has continually done. You know, he hints at what he wants done. He doesn't say, go kill uh, Nancy Pelosi. He says, you know, if she has an accident, oh, well. That's what Trump does. And that dog whistle code, that his followers understand it. You know, when during one of the debates, when he told Proud Boys, stand, stand down and stand by, he didn't, when he was asked to denounce them, he didn't denounce them. He literally ordered them to get ready for battle. That's what stand down and stand by means. And the fact that the mainstream press did not, did not go off on him for that is outrageous. We did, but not the mainstream corporate, corporate um, media. And this is mafia criminality, mafia style writ larger than before, and it's being committed by the GOP en masse, period. Even my... Um, my two senators, especially the one senator that likes to appear like he's more moderate, Roy Blunt. Roy Blunt is yet to denounce any of this. You know, when you call his office, he'll say, well, you know, he's, he's thinking about it. What is there to think about? Seriously, January 6th, they committed treason. Can you imagine what would have happened if, it had been Black Lives Matter or Antifa, which, again, majority of the time their protests are peaceable. If they had done one-tenth of what the January 6th people done, there would have been a bloodbath. Make no mistake about it. 
What happened on January 6th was worthy of, yes, calling it out as Nazism, period. Okay? And the problem goes back to the days of the founders, though, because there's such vague language in the Constitution. And this is what Trump's attorneys are basing everything on. You know, Adolf Hitler used to brag that he was going to destroy German democracy by using the very principles of democracy to destroy it. And that's exactly what the GOP is doing. See, the Constitution, um, if you look at Article 2 of the Constitution, it describes that the electors for the presidency are selected. And the Constitution says, in the manner of their own choosing, referring to the legislatures. So state legislatures are in charge of choosing electors. Now, we assume that the electors, you know, we still have winner take all. So whoever wins the popular vote, that they're supposed to be those electors. So, for instance, you know, if Bernie won the popular vote, for instance, got to get a plug-in in Missouri, let's say, then he would get the Missouri electors. You can't assign them to someone else unless, of course, there's actual proof of fraud, which there was not. So, but for more than 150 years, each state's decided that it would choose electors by, you know, asking its voters to vote. So we have been granted this facade for 150 years that we actually choose the president. But the fact is, the state legislatures, if you wanted to go with that vague language, they could probably get away with taking it away from us, which is, as far as I'm concerned, that would be treason on their part. But, um, you know, so the legal strategy is that the state legislators would take back their, their authority to directly choose electors. Now, why is that important? Because if, they, if the state legislature is GOP-controlled and they say we're taking back our authority to directly decide who the electors are going to be, they can essentially nullify the popular vote. They could just disregard what the popular vote is or if they don't want to go, if they don't want to blatantly steal our votes out from under us, then they can use a little trickery by saying that there's been some fraud or maybe maybe uh, some voters, they broke some little diddle type regulation. And that's all it would take. And so in reality, how would this play out? Okay, well, look at the state of Arizona in 2020. Biden won by a really narrow margin there. I think maybe 10,000 votes, something like that. Now, the Secretary of State, supposed to run the election, was a Democrat named Katie Hobbs. She certified that Biden won the state and that the electors from the state of Arizona are going to be Biden electors and that those electors will gather on December 14th, and that's during what's called the quadrennial meeting of the Electoral College, and they would cast their votes for Biden. Now, meanwhile, the Republicans in Arizona, it was a Republican-dominated legislature, said, no, no, there was fraud. We don't believe the count. We've done our own audit, we found fraud, Trump won, uh, and we, the legislature, quote, are using our powers under Article II of the Constitution, hereby appoint Trump electors instead of Biden electors, end quote. That's how easy our votes can be stolen from us, folks. Okay? That's it. So, anyway, if that happens in a bunch of states in Congress, has to kind of figure out which ones, which electors count, either one. 
so, you know, Terry Gross from NPR asked, so was Katie Hobbs, the Arizona Secretary of State, was she forced out then? And they said, no, she hasn't been forced out, but she's been bypassed. So how was the Democratic Secretary of State in Arizona bypassed by a Republican-dominated legislature in Arizona? Well, they passed the law. And they said that only until, let me read this, only until the date of the next election, in case the Republican wins, the Secretary of State will have no power to represent the state of Arizona in legal matters pertaining to the election, end quote. Basically, they took away her power to do what a Secretary of State does, which is oversee elections. Okay, that's just another example of how Republicans have either pushed out or defanged every one of Trump's opponents using legal technicalities that do not reflect the intent of the law. This is very dangerous, people. You you can laugh it up, but this is real. Okay? So, the Gelman goes on and explains in this NPR um, interview that, you know, he's asked, what are the GOP strategies that are engineered to kill Democratic rule? <clears throat> so he explains, Gelman explains that, um, first of all, the GOP takes advantage of races in really closely contested states. Okay. Those are closely contested states by the vote, but they're represented by a state legislature that's dominated by Republicans. And, you know, most of us really don't even know who our state-level representatives are. You know, they're just names on a ballot. And this is a good reason why, yeah, we need to run progressives at the state level in every state legislature. Okay? We can't let these traitors control things. And they are traitors. Oh, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> so one of it, one legal strategy involves, as I said before, the independent state legislature doctrine. Now, it's a doctrine according to this by proposal only. The idea is that since state legislatures under Article II of the Constitution have the authority to decide how electors are chosen, they can also decide that any deviation, no matter how minor, from any state law about how elections are run could change that selection, could reflect on who wins. So, for instance, um, if the state election administration, let's say they sent out mail ballots, like during the pandemic, and they asked voters to vote by mail, it's safer, even when the state legislature, quote, has not explicitly authorized that, then the state legislature may, I'm just reading straight from it, then the state legislature may take over the selection of electors because its will, in other words, the state legislature, is paramount. Quote, it's basically a doctrine that allows for the override of selection by voters. It's a way of firing the voters and assigning their votes to the candidate of the Republican legislature's choice. End quote. And like I said, isn't that the definition of an illegal coup? Using a technicality. <clears throat> so Gelman explains also that the state legislature also gets to draw district lines when they apportion votes inside the state. Quote, so they are gerrymandering the not only the U.S. federal congressional districts, but their own state house and Senate districts, so they just about can't lose. So Gelman points out how 
these state legislatures dominated by Republicans not only gerrymander crazy-looking districts or the U.S. House of Representatives, but they gerrymander districts within at the state level so that Republicans can't lose. There's a district here in Missouri, uh, oh, excuse me, <coughs> and it, it, I believe it's District 3, and um, it was gerrymandered, but back then it was, I think it was gerrymandered to favor a Democrat, but so it was gerrymandered to the point where it began in St. Louis City, and then a thin sliver of it went straight across the state to the state line. That's how crazy this gets. This is rigging the vote, except the GOP doing it. And once they get in and they decide that they're going to rig the rules so that they never lose, we're stuck with tyrants. That's what's happening. So kind of skipping ahead here. Gelman, Barton Gelman is also asked about President Biden. You know, it seems like the, the idea of election subversion, his administration is not taking it seriously enough, and I agree. And, you know, Gelman explains that, you know, Biden gave a speech this past July, you know, at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, yada, yada, yada. But he hasn't sprung to action, Okay. He has a lot on his plate. We understand that. But we have to preserve democracy. And, you know, Gelman's explained that, you know, Biden's just acting as if it's business and as usual regarding democracy. And to make no mistake, democracy and democratic rule is very much under threat. Okay. So we're going to move on here. You're getting the idea, though. All right. This is what we're really talking about. Now, there was another piece by Ed Pilkington, and this was in The Guardian, I believe, and the headline was, Republicans are vying for critical positions in many states from which they can launch a a far more effective power grab than Trump's 2020 efforts, and it goes into the same stuff, okay? We're going to skip it. You get the idea. My voice is starting to give out. There is one other thing, and this was on All Things Considered on NPR, and it's the danger within the U.S. military that has to be addressed. Retired General, here's a headline, it was written, uh, Retired General warns the U.S. military could lead a coup after the 24 election. And um, it was... Uh, co-written by Mary Louise Kelly, Noah Caldwell, and Ashish Valentine. Okay. So this is about retired two-star U.S. General Paul Eaton. And General Eaton co-authored an op-ed about a fear that the next coup could succeed after the 24 elections with help from the military. In fact, uh, excuse me, three retired U.S. generals have warned that another insurrection could occur after 24, and it could be instigated from within the ranks of the military. And the three generals are Paul Eaton, Antonio Taguba, and Stephen Anderson, and they published it in a Washington Post op-ed. 
And they wrote, quote, in short, we are chilled to our bones at the thought of a coup succeeding next time. So, you know, one of the interviewers asked, this is an interview actually, asked um, General Eaton, how could a coup play out in 24? General Eaton said, quote, the real question is, does everybody understand who the duly elected president is? If that is not a clear-cut understanding, that can infect the rank and file at any level and in the U.S. military, end quote. And we saw it when, quote, and we saw it when 124 retired generals and admirals signed a letter contesting the 2020 election. We're concerned about that, and we're interested in seeing mitigating measures applied to make sure that our military is better prepared for a contested election should that happen in 24, end quote. So, oh, excuse me. They mentioned something called the Transition Integrity Project, okay? And this was basically a, a project where they – where the military, where the military uh, ran four scenarios, okay, and where what would happen if there was a contested election. The one scenario they didn't play is where the U.S. military is compromised, you know, with Trump partisans or someone like that. Um, and so they're advocating a particular scenario like that needs to be addressed. And just the fact that retired generals are having this conversation really should be taken very seriously. You know, we don't, you know, we have an all-volunteer army, and that's fine. The problem is you more often than not see people from the far right joining the military, and we need people that believe in democracy to do it too. I hate to say it, so they learn how to use a gun because this far-right GOP, it's not a matter of if they commit massive actions of violence, massive acts of violence. It's only a matter of when. So this general talks about the need for civics lessons. I don't think that's enough, but you get the gist. I've explained based on Barton Gelman's, journalist Barton Gelman's analysis, you know, how the GOP intends to steal the election in 24 and after. And it's very dangerous. Now, have I, in conclusion, have I compared Trump and his acolytes to Hitler and the Nazis? In a word, yes. And I won't apologize for it. In fact, the Nazi regime borrowed many of its ideas, as I said before, from the Jim Crow South. So both white supremacists and Nazis share a kinship of evil ideas. Am I saying the GOP of Trump and Trumpism is fascist? I would disagree with some of our earlier guests, and I would say yes. But I'll leave that argument to semanticists. Trumpism, though, is heavily controlled by corporate powers and billionaires. And part of the definition of fascism is that it's, quote, a radical political ideology that combines elements of corporatism, authoritarianism, nationalism, militarism, anti-liberalism, and anti-communism, end quote. That's from the dictionary, from mcgill.ca. You have to think about that for a minute. We can argue whether or not this is fascism, but that's not the bigger point. <clears throat> Excuse me. The bigger point is that we allowed silent insurrectionists to get away with it. More importantly, we allowed the instigators, like Donald Trump, 
and the billionaires who funded the January 6th insurrection. People like Charles Koch, like the Mercers, like Uline. Allowed them to get away with it, too. This cannot be allowed to stand. (coughs) So, theoretically, as we approach the January 6th anniversary this week, we see, almost laughingly, mainstream commentators like Margaret Brennan of Face the Nation and Chuck Todd of Meet the Press scratching their heads as they incredulously question how this could have happened in the first place. I mean, they're stunned. They're stunned by the fact that many of the insurrectionists on the 6th were professional people and CEOs. Again, as I said before, a few were stereotyped redneck supporters. I just, I, I don't know why both alleged journalists were stunned or confused. This show of white supremacy and neo-Nazism has always been present. Maybe not represented with an open show of violence that the world witnessed a year ago, but it's always been part of the U.S. political power structure. Perhaps the open show of violence shook them because this openness hadn't been there since the heyday of Jim Crow where lynchings, lynchings of black people were public events like a church carnival. You know, the racists, they lynched. In other words, they pounded black people to a pulp. And then they murdered them in plain sight. Afterwards, often setting the corpse on fire. Get this, as the men of the lynch mob and their families sat with their families and enjoyed a spring picnic. This is an hyperbole. This is documented fact. This is American history. The same American history that these anti-CRT jackasses want to censor and keep from the public. This type of open, violent racism and murder by lynch mob, acceptable and even seen as a reasonable response to uppity minorities having the gall to demand equal rights and true rule of law, still exists. It just went underground for a while. And when these neo-Nazis, proud boys, whatever they call themselves, when they make jokes about, you know, what, burned black people or throwing Jews in ovens and so on and so forth, and they claim they're just being ironic. No, they're not. That is code. They, they are inciting clearly to more violence. They know exactly what they're doing. There's no irony. There's no satire. It is public incitement to violence, period. And as such, it legally, technically qualifies as simple assault, the crime of simple assault. Batteries when they actually do it. Simple assault is the threat. Why were these television journalists like Margaret Brennan and Chuck Todd so shocked and confused? Well, now that the violence is extended to affluent whites who don't participate in the lynch mob, these privileged journalists can feel the hot breath of the insurrectionists on the back of their privileged necks. Snack of self-preservation, not good journalism. For too long, the mainstream press has pushed another big lie, namely the false equivalence argument. You remember the argument that equates the crimes of white supremacists and neo-Nazis with the somewhat rowdy protests of the left. Again, it's a fallacy. There is no comparison. When you look at the actual documented facts, the protests of Black Lives Matter, of Antifa, of Occupy before them, were peaceful. There was a small minority that caused violence. 
but that's all it was. The protest of Ferguson, like my, my um, Congresswoman Cori Bush, I was down in Ferguson practically every day, and I saw it with my own eyes. And the, and the violence I saw was committed by white cops. It wasn't from the protesters. And I, I'll, I'll swear to it on a stack of Bibles in federal court, proudly. So all this together, what we really have to, real, what we really have to face is the fact that we have a nation that is under serious existential threat of treasonous overthrow, and it's being accomplished behind the scenes by politicians and attorneys that are willing to abuse the vague language of the Constitution and their, legal li- their law licenses in order to establish a Trumpian dictatorship reminiscent of Adolf Hitler. And unfortunately, the, Democrat, the corporate Democrats are aiding and abetting. At the very least, they're complicit because there's no meaningful resistance coming from the Biden administration or the Democratic Party. There's no meaningful resistance coming from the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland. He has not charged Donald Trump. He has not charged those that funded the insurrection. And he must do his duty or be replaced with someone who will. But the fact is, Democrats seem terrified of these, so terrified of these GOP conspirators who do Trump's building, bidding that they're, they're not doing anything. And, and that's the sad part, because just as the Nazi regime seated known criminals in positions of authority within the Reich, so does Trumpism, with the Democratic Party, the corporate Dems, acting just like the cowards of Vichy. Now, I've got some quotes here that I want you to understand. I'm going to read to you three quotes. Quote number one is about lying. Quote, the size of the lie is a definite factor in causing it to be believed, for the vast masses of the nation are in the depths of their hearts more easily deceived than they are consciously and intentionally bad. The primitive simplicity of their minds renders them a more easy prey to a big lie than a small one, for they themselves often tell little lies but would be ashamed to tell a big one, end quote. That's quote number one about lying. The other two quotes are about democracy itself. One, quote, the party should not become a constable of public opinion, but must dominate it. It must not become a servant of the masses, but their master. And the last one, end quote, democracy, the deceitful theory that the blank would insinuate, namely that the theory that all men are created equal, end quote. Now, those last two quotes, I'm going to reread. It's going to give it away, the source of the quote. Quote number two, quote, the Nazi party should not become a constable of public opinion, but must dominate it. It must not become a servant of the masses, but their master, end quote. And the last one, quote, democracy. The deceitful theory that the Jew would insinuate, namely that theory that all men are created equal, end quote. Sounds a lot like Trumpism. Sounds exactly like Trumpism. And the origin of those quotes, Adolf Hitler. That's our show for tonight. Um, I hope it was enlightening. Uh, We're skipping the jackass of the week because this was just too serious, but don't worry. There's plenty of jackassery around, especially coming from the, the GOP. 
I hope you tune in. I also hope that you check out Rick Spizak's um, poetry program on Progressive News Network. He has international poets. It is phenomenal. Uh, I also would invite you to check out my other show that airs every other Thursday, and that's the Environmental Justice Report, where, again, we report on just that issues of environmental justice, environmental racism, and so on, um, issues that aren't covered too many other places. And then I would also invite you to check out my reporting on my new publishing home at BuzzFlash. I'm preparing a piece right now as we speak. So with that, I say Happy New Year to all. And, oh, gosh, God bless us. <laughs>